0: Looking at Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18 this evening, Oh, how he loves you. The last time we were together, in Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 13, we considered the nature of Jesus' sacrifice for us, and so how special Christ should be to us. That because of what Christ has done for us, tasting death for every man, it is right and good that Christ should be special to us. Well, this week we consider us as the redeemed, and through it, how special we are to him. And so this relationship between God and man through Jesus Christ is something very unique that we find. So unlike anything any other religious system is contemplated or or understands. And where it brings us, as those who have tasted the love of Christ, is to peace consolation. This is going to be a somewhat simple message. I don't think I'm going to tell you much that you do not know this evening. It is going to contemplate the nature of Christ's sacrifice and thus the nature of, of how much Christ loves us. And these are things which are important to bubble up in times like these. In a the country and a culture which is upended in fear and in anger, this passage today draws us to peace and comfort. So I'd like us to begin back at the beginning of our context in Hebrews chapter 2. We'll read beginning in verse 1. That way we can see where we're coming to this evening. It actually could have been appended to the last message, uh, but that would have made the message quite long. So we'll focus on it in itself this evening. Verses 1 through 13 of Hebrews 2, the Bible says this, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape, if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus... Who is made a little lower than the angels for the sufferings of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. So Paul is making this argument regarding the unique nature of Jesus Christ, which transcends the ministry and the message of the law and the prophets. Of course, we've talked about this uh, quite a bit at this point. Jesus deserves the greater heed because he has the greater message. He is the greater in dignity and in inheritance and in reward. And he continues, of course, then to contrast with the angels, but not this time focusing upon the law, but focusing upon the nature of the redemptive plan, that Jesus did not take on the nature of angels, though angels are higher in dignity than man, in that they are spiritual beings, and they have this unique honor of being in the presence of God, but rather he took on the nature of a man. God has not given the world to come unto an angel or unto the angels, but to the man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus took upon himself the form of a man who was made lower than the angels and tasted the realities of death, and he did this for us, that he might bring many sons to glory, that we might share in his inheritance being called Christ's brothers, as we talked about last time. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers and not ashamed to call all of those his brothers who will com- come to him by faith. And this leads us thus to these final verses. We needed a, a, a reinitiation of our context to lead us into these final verses, verses 14 through 18, of which we consider today. And in verses 14 and 15, the Bible says this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, That through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This verse plays right off of Paul's quotations from Psalm 22, Psalm 18, Isaiah 8, as we talked about last week, revealing that God has chosen to call those who follow his son children, and that the son calls those who follow him brethren. Now, the argument Paul makes is very important, in that those whom God has desired to be brothers and children are of flesh and blood, in that we are human, and in our humanity we are fallen under the power of death, the Son of God must thus take upon himself our nature if he is going to conquer death on our behalf. Jesus became human, not because humans are the best and the brightest. Jesus became human because humans are those whom the Father desires to make his children. And humans are the ones who rest under the burden of the power of death. And thus they rest under the power of the one who holds the power of death, and that is the devil. Now we spoke this morning about the power of the devil, The power of the devil is not just in his abilities to possess or to oppress, as we talked about, right? We talked about the nature of possession and the idea of some spirit being entering into a man and taking control of him as we see in the New Testament. We recognize that we would not believe that to be able to happen to believers because they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And yet in the unbelieving world, this is something which, especially around the world in places of darkness, uh, would not necessarily be uncommon or unexpected. And I believe personally that we see, we are seeing a great deal of it in our, our, our current age. It's not being called demonic possession, uh, but I believe we are seeing a great deal of it uh, in, our, in our time and in our age. And then we talk about oppression, and oppression is, is uh, attacks from without, whether that be um, um, suggestions into the mind, or whether that be uh, the oppressions of, of demonic forces laying upon us suffering, or, or, or sorrows, or, or whatever it might be, of course, under the sovereignty of God and under his allowance. But then we also talked about the power of the devil, not just to possess or to oppress, but then the power of the devil and devils in general, that being Satan's minions, to influence. The devil has on his side all of the elements of culture and of this world, right? He has the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world are a part of Satan's kingdom program. He has on his side the levers of culture so that as we see the nature of culture, as we see uh, the, the nature of society, the culture and society is always bending in a direction toward Satan and his philosophy because it's always bending in the direction of the material rather than the spiritual. And again, that does not mean all culture is evil and, and all culture is wicked, but that culture as a general rule bends in that direction because culture is something that is earthly, And the things that are earthly, that that are invested in this world rather than in the world to come, are generally speaking things that are an investment into the kingdom of the God of this world, who is the devil. And the devil has not only those things on his side, but he has this very real thing on his side, the power of death. Death being separation, as we've talked about many times. I'm not going to rehash the nature of death this evening. You've heard it from me quite a bit lately. The devil has the power of separation from God on his side. And for those who remain in this state of separation from God, eternal death, or what the Bible calls the second death. The devil has any number of of things on his side, power of pride, the power of ignorance, the power of shame, but also the power of this natural separation from God, natural separation between God and man, so that anyone who comes to God must be reconciled to God because naturally he is, as Ephesians 2, as we saw this morning, describes him, a a child of wrath and a child of disobedience. Now, in order to destroy the works of the devil, in order to destroy the power of death, he must destroy the devil and the works of the devil. So we say, okay, well then why can't God just cast the devil in the lake of fire and be done with it? We see at the end of the the millennium, Satan is cast in the lake of fire and death and hell are cast in the lake of fire, right? Right? The last enemy to be destroyed is death, and it is cast in the lake of fire. Well, God can't yet destroy the works of the devil and the devil himself because the devil holds the power of death. So to destroy the devil is to destroy the power of death. And the power of death holds whom? Man, right? We've talked about this. You've perhaps heard accounts before of situations where a terrible accident has happened, and a person has some foreign object lodged into his body. And the doctors uh, uh, take him and take him into the hospital and do x-rays and all of the the works, and they see this foreign object lodged into this person's body. But the placement of the object in the body is such that to remove it would naturally kill the person to, to remove the object. This is kind of the idea. The devil has the power of death. Death is lodged in man. To destroy the devil and thus to remove the power of death is to remove, to destroy all of those who are under the power of death. And of course, this is why Christ came. Paul explains this in Romans 5. "...whereas by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned." That was Romans 5.12, skipping to Romans 5.18. "...therefore as by one, the, uh, by the offense of, of one, excuse me, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners..." So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Man is inextricably linked with death. And he became inextricably linked with death when Adam, the first man, invited sin into God's created order by inviting sin into his own actions. This death is under the power of the devil. And to destroy the power of the devil is to destroy the power of death, but to destroy The power of death is to destroy mankind with it, as as long as mankind is still attached to that death. And there is coming a day where God will destroy this death, right? Where death will be cast into the lake of fire, where hell will be cast into the lake of fire. But on that day, every man who is still connected to that death will go with death into the lake of fire. So, God sent a man, his son, and he, through righteousness, by tasting death for every man, as we talked about last week, a death which he did not deserve, purchased through his blood the choice for man to be decoupled from death and enter into life. And when at once we accept that gift, we are added to the children of the Father, to the brethren of the Son, redeemed from death by the obedience of that one man. But as it was with a man who brought death into the race, so it must be with the man who redeemed man from that death. And that, as we know so well, is exactly how much God loves us. That God sent his son to be made lower than the angels to taste death for every man. God will destroy the devil. God will destroy the works of the devil. But first, our loving creator will seek to decouple every human possible from the devil's power that we might not be destroyed with him. And why did we need this deliverance? Some of us will connect more naturally to the nature of Paul's description here than others. Notice what Paul says as he talks about destroying him that hath power of death, that is, the devil. He says in verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now think through this description with me. Paul is describing believers here, but he really is describing a subset of believers if you think through this. This is not a description that would, I believe, characterize a great number of pagan believers as you would think about it, that they, through fear of death, are all their lifetime subject to bondage. The typical pagan unbeliever lives in bondage to their sin, to be sure. But generally speaking... They live in the pleasure and the emptiness of that sin. If you were to take a poll of the number of unbelievers and say, how many of you feel as though you are living uh, in bondage, uh, in your lifetime subject to bondage and living in fear of death? Well, we might see, particularly in the days of COVID, more people living in fear of death, but they're not living in fear of eternal death, right? They're living quite um, ignorant of that eternal death. They're living quite oblivious or, or or ambivalent to that eternal death. So it's an interesting description here that Paul says that he has come to deliver them through who fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. But maybe not. Because the title of this book is Hebrews. And now think about Paul's audience. He's writing to a, a, a group of believers who are Jews who prior to their faith held a strong loyalty to Judaism, to the kind of Judaism that was in play when Jesus entered into the picture and when he began to speak to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees and when he began to uh, cast out the money changers and, and correct their thinking on the Sabbath and all of these things. This subset of society of unbelieving society did live in fear of death and through their lives were subject to bondage, weren't they? This is Paul's audience. A legalistic religious system, the nation of Israel at the time of Christ. So Paul's description of the nature of the reader throughout their unbelieving lives is very accurate as it relates to this subset of the unbelieving world that lived in constant fear of judgment in constant fear of death, in constant fear, looking over their shoulder, wondering if God was going to strike them down. And why did they live in such constant fear? Because they were serving a ritualistic system unto which they could never measure up. And they were constantly failing because they were constantly flawed. And there are perhaps some people in here that lived that way, or maybe even still, though you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, live that way that you live constantly looking over your shoulder, constantly uh, under condemnation, constantly in fear of this separation, constantly in guilt, constantly in shame. Things which Paul tells us here are the antithesis of what Jesus Christ called us into through His death on the cross. And I cannot stress this enough, though we are contemplating redemption I cannot stress enough to you how important it is that you recognize the purpose of Christ's coming was to release you from guilt, to release you from shame, to release you from condemnation. Not by allowing you to sin with impunity, but rather to cleanse your conscience and then to direct you toward the grace of God. And this is a very important element of our context to understand that there is a group of unbelievers who are bound to a lifetime of bondage, both not just to their sin, but to guilt over their sin without ever seeing the way out, without ever seeing the grace of God and the opportunity to be released from that bondage by God's grace and his forgiveness. And this is very important. Because in the verses to follow, Paul is going to begin to link Jesus not just to humanity and then, of course, to the Hebrews, but to the function of the priesthood as understood in the law of Moses. And uh, we'll see that. uh, We'll get through chapters 3 and 4, and then we'll get more into the priesthood as we get to chapter 5. That being said, though, it is not only the religious that are subject to bondage, as I mentioned. For all men are subject to the bondage of death, whether they understand it or not. Paul testifies to this in Romans chapter 8 as he paints this contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. He says in verse 10 of Romans 8, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. The idea there is is that as we walk in the flesh, we experience that loss loss of fellowship, that lack of, of, of connection or of relationship with God by means of our sin. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I was talking to a young lady the other day at the jail, and I told you about her last week, so this is familiar to most of you. I've been working with this young lady probably now for five years off and on as she would be in and out of jail dealing with addictions. And she'd made a profession many years ago under my ministry, but had never borne much fruit, and most of that profession being a lip service idea, until this most recent time that she's been in jail. And it's still very difficult in a jail setting to assess anyone's salvation because things are so different in jail, right? They're so different when you're dealing with a person who is separated from their normal environment and separated from those temptations and such. But things do seem to be different this time. And she tells me that before she always seemed to, be, seemed to be seeking Jesus for her own benefit, for her own selfish reasons, never truly understanding how incapable she was of being right with God and herself and how much she truly needed to be saved. And now she does and she's learning and she's growing and she appears to be bearing fruit. And as we were talking, she was saying how she's been to treatment so many times and it has not worked for her. And what is actually helping her is the Bible. And as she was contemplating getting out of jail, being faced again with the temptations to walk back into the devastating subculture of drugs and addictions that she had been in so many times, she looked at me and she said, I can't really explain it. But for the first time in my life, I'm not afraid anymore. I don't feel alone anymore. Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. This idea that we no longer live under this spirit of bondage, which holds us in fear, that is what Paul is talking about in Hebrews chapter 2. Not just speaking of the nature of of the religious system of bondage under which uh, the, the Jewish person would year by year, mom- uh, t- time and time again, give these sacrifices, uh, but walk away and, and again be, be impressed with the guilt of their sin as they once again, though they had just made a sacrifice, are, are, are again guilty. We'll talk about that later on in the book of Hebrews. But also this concept this concept of the bondage of our sin, the bondage of our flesh, which leads us into this place of fearfulness, whereby even those who deny the power of God and the presence of God in their lives must recognize, at least at an intrinsic level, as Romans chapter 1 tells us, that there is a condemnation, there is a culpability and a a judgment for these things. And this is why Jesus took on the nature of man. He took on the form of a man because it is only, it it is only by him taking on our nature that he can deliver us from that spirit of bondage unto fear. Paul will go on then to say in verses 16 and 17, for verily, truly, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people." Now connect this to verse 15 where Paul talks about this group of people who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And you can see particularly as we get into verses 16 and 17 the Hebrew nature of what he's saying here. That Jesus did not just take on the nature of, uh, he didn't take on the nature of angels, nor did he just take on the nature of man, but he took on the nature of the seed of Abraham, right? He took upon himself this Jewish nature, And then it's connected to this high priesthood, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, seeking to connect the Hebrew mind to what the sacrificial system did, which was to cleanse sin, but only on a temporal level, and to what Jesus Christ did to cleanse sin, but this time on a permanent level, on a spiritual level. Angels are greater in nature and in dignity than man. Angels have power that man does not have. But Jesus took upon himself the seed of Abraham, humanity from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, and he became a man, and so bound himself to the nature of that race of men in bondage to death. Bound himself to the nature of the Hebrews a nation of men who lived under the fear of their own obvious incapacity to cleanse themselves from their own sin, which the law made abundantly evident to them. And it behooved him, the Bible says, to take on this nature. That word literally meaning it it obliged him or he did it of necessity. Why? So that he could lead humanity into reconciliation as a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Paul is thus uh, giving us a sneak peek into a whole new subcontext as he'll relate to the high priest. Again, I mentioned not, not quite yet. Paul connects Jesus to the high priest and connects the Hebrew mind to the teachings of the Torah and thousands of years of Jewish history. When Jesus uses that word reconciliation, and calls Jesus a merciful and faithful high priest. He is forming a definitive link which cannot be ignored by the Hebrew reader and which would be very significant to them. And we'll get into this much over the course of the next many chapters. But again, this is not Paul's immediate point. His immediate point and where he will be going next before he compares Jesus to the priesthood of Aaron will be the nature of Jesus' priestly ministry in reconciling us to God of which Paul says in verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. And the culmination of this argument will be right at the end of Hebrews 4. So we've got a little ways to go before we get to the end of this, this string of the argument. Jesus is triumphant and victorious over sin. And in that Jesus lived a righteous life but died a sinner's death, He earned an inheritance. He obtained a more excellent name than the angels, and he became a man, redeeming man from sin, exalted by the Father above all things in heaven and earth, all things being put under his feet, but also in that Jesus lived a righteous life, in that he faced the same temptations that you and I face every day. He is not just able to deliver us from the bondage of eternal death, but, this is essential, Christian, He is able to deliver you from the bondage of sin in this life. And this is where we're gearing up to talk about next. This is what the next several chapters of Scripture are going to help us understand next. That we ought not be living in sin because we need not be living in sin sin. Because Christ did not just die to save us from eternal death. He died to save us from the bondage of this death. He did not just die to save us from our eternal damnation. He died to deliver us from the power of sin, to succor us, that word literally meaning to relieve or to aid or to assist them that are tempted. And this, again, as I've mentioned, will culminate in in Hebrews chapter 4 to give you a preview of where we're going. Verses 15 and 16 say, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we, and yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is what Paul is introducing here. The merciful and faithful high priest in that he has suffered being tempted, not just in that he died, but in that he was tempted, he is able to succor them who are tempted. And let this be a lifeline of light to you, Christian, this evening. He is able to be a merciful and, high, uh, and faithful high priest, not only redeeming us from eternal death, but a redeemer from the power of sin in our lives. Jesus understands temptation because he was tempted. Jesus understands suffering. He suffered. Jesus understands death. He, 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 he recognizes death. He lived through the death of others. He understands, he, 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 he experienced death himself. He's experienced all of these things. And thus he can be a faithful and merciful high priest. He can be the mediator between us and God because he has experienced these things. And this, this uh, argument will, will come into full flesh in the weeks that are to come. And Christian, this is how much God loves us. God sent his son, not only so that you and I might go to heaven, but so that you and I might live this life Under the faithful and merciful guidance of a Savior who knows what it is to suffer, who knows what it is to fear, who knows what it is to hunger, who knows what it is to be weary, and in that he knows, and in that he overcame, he has every ounce of credibility and capability to help us overcome as well. And this is how much God loves you. I don't know all the ins and outs of what might be going on in your life right now, I know that there are people that are suffering through great frustrations. We're all suffering through great frustrations as it relates to our authorities, right? But maybe you have some unique frustrations of which I do not know. And we go through struggles of health and of illness. We go through struggles of, uh, of, of uh, concerns as it relates to our well-being or the well-being of others. And we go through emotional hardships, and we go through uh, physical hardships, and we go through spiritual hardships, and we wonder if anyone understands. And you may come to pastor, and you may say, pastor, I'm going through these things right now, and I might uh, seek to help you out, and then you walk away saying, yeah, but pastor doesn't really understand, and maybe, maybe I don't. Maybe your parents don't, or maybe your husband doesn't, or maybe your wife doesn't. Or maybe your friend doesn't, and you feel alone in this thing. But here's the thing. We have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And maybe you're struggling over sin, and, and you're, you're frustrated, and you're living in some measure of bondage, and you wonder if there's a way out, and you wonder if there's victory to be had. Well, the Bible says there is. You do not have to live in that bondage. That is not your cross to bear, for Jesus already bore that cross. And he bore it all the way to Calvary. And that's how much he loves you. And maybe it is, as I mentioned before, that you're dealing with some measure of frustration, of condemnation, that though you know Jesus has borne these things on the cross, you still deal with your own frustrations, your own shortcomings, your own condemnation. Maybe it's the condemnation of the devil as we talked about this morning, as 2 Timothy tells us the devil can do. And may I encourage you that much of what we're going to see in Hebrews is going to direct us unto this manner of thinking, that Jesus Christ did not bear in you the image of God uh, uh, of, of, himself in in the physical, nor bear in you the, the the reality of the new nature by being born again for you to remain in a place of condemnation, of guilt, and of shame. This is not the birthright of the believer. Jesus Christ became a faithful high priest and took upon himself that death to deliver you from the bondage, from that bondage and from that fear. And so be encouraged. We'll learn more about how it is that this deliverance happens over over the next weeks and months. But have hope, Christian. See the light that is there. Because that is the entire point of Jesus dying. That is why Jesus took on the nature of man and not the nature of angels. So that he could do for us that which we so desperately need. And that's how much he loves us. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.